Welcome to the Lessons Learned Podcast, a podcast reflecting on the lessons we've learned and those we're still in the process of learning. I'm Komal, your host. I'm an interviewer, investor, and someone who has lived a lot of life in a short time. I built this podcast as a place for us to reflect, to be together, and to learn from one another. Let's get into it. Welcome to episode 23 of the Lessons Learned podcast. This week's episode is a little bit different. It's a keynote address that I gave actually virtually uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was called in to deliver a keynote address for International Women's Day, Women's History Month, and the day before, it was right when all the COVID things were starting to domino. And my husband came into proximity with someone who was diagnosed with COVID. And so we decided there's no way we're going to be carriers. We are staying home. We are self-isolating. And I will find a way to do this keynote digitally. And that I did. But that also led to me being able to record it for us on the show. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode all about building a purpose-driven life and career and a Q&A that covered everything from building resilience to facing failure to being the only in a room to my thoughts on parenting, which, spoiler alert, I'm not a mom yet, but I have some thoughts on it. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's such a pleasure to be here with all of you today. Of course, I would have loved to be there in person, but as we know, we're in a challenging time globally, and I'm really glad we could make use of technology in this way for me to be there in the room with you in the way that I could be. And I have to say, hearing about all of BLG's commitment to belonging and inclusion and diversity, it is so powerful to reflect on that that is a core tenant of the organization, that that is something that is being worked towards every single day, and that is obviously ingrained in the culture of the firm. And I know not just for your clients, but with folks that you're bringing in to engage with the, with the firm, it means a lot to me that that is a priority. And so when I was talking to my husband about this keynote and this talk, we were talking about different aspects of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and how sometimes I can't even decouple it from my career, because how can one decouple their identity from the work that they do? And that has become something that is very evident to me. So as I share my story here today, representation is embedded in every part of it, because I can't, I can't undo who I am and what I am in this world. And I want to take you back with me. A few years ago, I was in Brooklyn uh, when I lived there when we were building Dream Girl. And I had gone to an event with an author, Glennon Doyle Melton, whose new book just came out this week that, I, that I'm reading right now. And when she was on stage, she said something to me that, or said something to the room that stuck with me. And she asked this question. Uh, one of the audience members had asked, you know, how do you know what your why is? How do you know what you're supposed to devote or, or give your life to when it comes to the work that you're doing in the world? And it was so simple yet so profound. And she said, that which breaks your heart, that's who you're meant to serve in the world. That which, when you see it, evokes emotion, brings you to tears, brings you to your knees, that's the community you are here to do your work for. And when she asked that question, I was immediately brought back to Kiala my familial village in India. And 
I had just been there prior to the event, and, and a year ago I was on that soil of our ancestral land. And I remember walking through the village, seeing the young village girls, and having a profound gratitude for the privilege I had of being born on Canadian soil. When I think back to my grandfather moving to that village after partition between Pakistan and India, going across the border, having to restart a life, leaving their businesses behind in Pakistan, and then moving into clay huts in this village and rebuilding their lives, I was humbled. I was humbled because their sacrifices allowed me to build this life that I have here today. I was humbled because I had just learned of two young women who I had seen the year before when I was in the village, Raj and her sister. Her sister had just been married and I had gone to that wedding the prior year. We were dancing around the village as we do, celebrating this amazing celebration. I would hear from my mom later that the marriage didn't work out. Raj's sister, you see, was being abused by her husband. And shortly thereafter, she came home. The abuse was too much. Raj was helping my grandma around our house in our village and also was struggling with her education, figuring out her next steps. You see, her mother had died and her father had abandoned their family. They were being raised by their grandmother. And in India, in our village, there was a stigma attached to this family. And so when I talked to my grandma one day, she shared some devastating news with me. She shared that Raj and her sister, whose wedding I had partially attended, had ingested some poison um, and that they had committed suicide together. And I could not move past their stories. I could not move past seeing them in my mind. It changed me that news because my life is so different because I was born in Canada, because those young women did not have the opportunity to achieve their greatest potential because of the limitations that society placed on them, because of the challenges that the villagers were projecting onto them, because of the hope that their parents were not able to instill in them. And so Raj and her sister are my why. The girls in our familial village are my why. After that happened tragically, my grandmother made it her mission to support their eldest sister, Amin, in pursuing her nursing degree. And she is about to graduate and we're hopefully going to be able to help her come to Canada to build out her nursing career. Another young girl in the village that I met last year, we found out that her father was abusing her. And so Mitch and I, my husband and I, we decided we would take her under our wing and pay for her education from middle school through to high school through to university. Because if an external individual can see the potential in a child, perhaps the parents will see even more value in that child. And so these children, these young women have become my why. And I wanted to share that story with you here today because anytime someone asks me, why do you do what you do? It always comes back to Kiala and those young women. And that their story always evokes in me this reminder of my privilege and of why I am here to do this important work every day of helping young women and girls realize their unrealized potential. And so what I wanna share with you here today, now that I've established what that why is for me and how you can tap into that yourself by asking yourself, what breaks my heart? I want to share with you 
how you define and pursue a purpose-driven career and life. One that for me has been ingrained with representation and inclusion and belonging out of necessity. So part one of that is communities and conversation of support. And what's often needed with that is people who look like you. So when I was young, <laughs> in fourth grade, I was actually failing fourth grade. <laughs> and it took an intervention from my fourth grade teacher to show my parents that I wasn't doing well, that there was something wrong, that an intervention was needed. I wasn't handing in my in-class tests. I didn't see a purpose to doing well in school. I was being bullied. I didn't have friends. And that little seven or eight-year-old me just felt so alone. And so my mother did an intervention one weekend with my brother when she found out. And for those of you who do have immigrant parents, you know what kind of devastation it might have been for her to know her daughter wasn't doing well in school. And it took a day for her to calm her, her nerves, her aggression, her anger, um, and bring it down. But then she thought, no, we need to make an action plan. And her and my brother took me and they did a intensive school for it was a science test that was coming up an intensive science study session and so all weekend i studied and i studied and i studied and i went to school on monday and i wrote that test and it was graded in class so i came home i ran home i ran home and i banged on the door and my mom came to the door and she was like what's going on Gomel? what's going on and i said ma i got 98 percent." and she said Gomel, what are you going to learn from this and i said that with some hard work i can achieve anything and she said yes but also remember that it's always going to be a little bit harder for you. Not only are you going to have to do the work, but you're going to have to do the work of finding ways to belong and ways to find your community and ways to level yourself up. And my mother reminded me of that part of the story, because when I would share this story on stage, she would always say, but do you remember the second thing I said to you? And I would say, no, Ma, I didn't. And she said, it was to work that much harder because you would have to. And what makes that easier is these communities and conversations of support. So this past week, I was at an event with SheEO, which is an organization that invests money into female founders. And I had the privilege of interviewing a woman named Mona Sinha. She is the board chair of Women Moving Millions, an organization in New York City whose membership invests a million dollars into the uplifting of women and girls over a decade. And when I was meeting Mona, I had I knew about women moving millions. It was like me having a moment of like meeting some an idol, someone who I aspired to become and be like. And when I met Mona, I was so taken because that organization previously, the leadership was all white women. And when I would look at that leadership and interact with those women at various events, I wouldn't feel like I could be a part of that crew, that it was an organization or a group of women that I could belong to because I didn't see anyone who looked like me. But when I saw Mona, the latest board chair, and when I had time to dive into her history and her story, I found so many parallels between her work and mine. And I just felt so comfortable with her. And we spent an hour or more off stage just diving into the work that I'm now doing with Lessons Learned and how she wants me to be a part of Women Moving Millions now and that we were going to work together to create something even bigger between our, our shared missions. That wouldn't have happened had I not been able to identify with her and see someone who looked like me. You can't be what you can't see. And that takes me to Dream Girl. Mona in this part of my career has allowed me to remember who I am, what I am, what I can create. And back in the day, three years or four years ago, I was able to do the same for other people. When we were creating Dream Girl, 
it was a time when female entrepreneurs, our stories weren't in the forefront. There weren't networking groups that were specific to women entrepreneurs that have now become prolific. There were not business mentors online who were sharing their stories and allowing women to be what they couldn't see at the time. And we were at that forefront of that wave. Dream Girl got to be a part of that takeoff, that launch. And when we were creating that film, it became critical to us to represent on screen that which we weren't seeing elsewhere. Four of our five main characters were women, women of color. And that was something that we did without naming it because that's the world that we live in. When I walk through the streets of Toronto, diversity is a part of the nature of the city. And it's something that I value so much because when I look around the streets and see people who look like me, I feel the belonging, I feel included. And that is what we dream to do with Dream Girl and that is why I think the impact of it was so immense. The tens of thousands of people who saw it around the world, the hundreds of groups of women who came together to share that story and the reason that it was able to penetrate so many parts of the folks watching in their minds and come together and have such fruitful, powerful, honest discussions. It became a greater catalyst because it was so representative of the world that we live in. And even in this moment, champions are so important, even for those who don't look like us. So Kathy reaching out to me and having me share with my story with you here today at BLG, Becoming champions for those whose stories we know need to be elevated, need to be shared more, because we need to increase representation, not only in these moments, but within leadership of the companies that we exist in. Because like my mother said, I don't just have to work hard. I have to work hard to belong. And if the people around me don't look like me, don't reflect my lived experience, aren't able to, uh, to empathize with what I've gone through, as a person of color, as a woman of color, at whatever intersection of identity I might hold, then I become further isolated. And working through isolation and working hard is near impossible at times. And I've spoken to women, woman after woman who has been the only, person of color after person of color who has been the only. And the isolation and pressure of being the only is devastating. And so it's not just the communities and conversations with people like us, but it's about stepping outside of our own privilege and seeing others and saying, yes, I see you. I will create space for you and I will allow you to elevate in this space with me. So that's step one to defining and pursuing a purpose-driven career is communities and conversations of support. Part two is being well as we navigate this purpose. I think this is very timely considering the current climate in the world. And it's not just about being well yourself, but how do we support the communities that we're in? When we self-isolate in the next weeks, months, whatever it is, we are doing it not just for ourselves, but for those in our society who are at the margins, those who are living with disability, chronic illness, those who are elderly. We are the carriers of this disease. And so we have to not just be mindful for ourselves, but for those in, this, in society who don't have a choice in the matter. And being well for me, what that looked like was when we were building Dream Girl, it was the highest of highs in my career and the lowest of lows. The same week we were named to Oprah Super Soul 100, I was diagnosed with a rare form of skin cancer. The same month we premiered our film at the Obama White House was the same month I had my first surgery to remove cancer from my body. The same week I was on my first magazine cover was the same week that I had to go under for my second surgery. These highs and lows at 27, I didn't know what to do with myself. I convinced myself that the work would heal me. 
If I'm doing something purpose-driven, then my life is supposed to be complete. As women, we're taught to serve and give to others, but rarely do we reflect on how we give back to ourselves. It's happening more and more, and it's so powerful that it is, but it takes a lot of unlearning to get to that point. I thought that working on rebuilding and creating a new world externally was enough, but it wasn't. I couldn't just focus on changing the external world. I had to change my internal world, my own operating system. And after Dream Girl, I became quite ill and had to move back here to Canada. Now I'm in carp in the middle of the country (laughs) with land that has helped me heal, with community that has helped me heal. But I had to make that a priority because if we self-sacrifice, if we become unwell in our process of building a purpose-driven career, what's the point? I think back to how unwell I was, and I think of my parents' sacrifices, and I think of what they did for me to have the life that I have now. Their intention was not for their daughter to become so unwell that she could no longer function. I had to keep that in mind. And so building those boundaries for ourselves of having my work-like life, having my personal life, building routines of practice and wellness are so important for us, especially at this point in time. The healthier we are, the healthier our society is. The more we care for those at the, bo- at the lower parts of our society, the ones who are neglected, disenfranchised, the better off we all can be. And so being well as we navigate our purpose is critical to our success overall with our purpose. And what ended up happening when I was sick was I realized there was a gap in the content that I was consuming. When I was ill, I thought I was just searching for anything positive anything to show me that resilience and rising were possible, that I was able to come back from being unwell, that I was able to regain cognitive function, because at that time I was cancer-free, but I was diagnosed with a neurological illness right after. And so when I was at the depths of my illness, I needed hope. And I found fun content, celebrity interviews, different things like that. I would find meme videos, TikTok was on the up and up, (laughs) but I couldn't find stories of how did someone rise from the hardest parts of their lives. And a seed was planted. A seed was planted for my show Lessons Learned, which is now becoming a space where I will be elevating stories of resilience and rising so that I can create what I needed in my lowest moment. So not only can we pull from our lives and these moments of heartbreak and these moments that bring us to our knees, not only can those tell us what, but it can also tell us how. And that's the power of focusing on our wellness alongside building community when we dive into a purpose-driven career. Now, finally, my last little piece of this puzzle for today is around allowing ourselves to be seen. It's one thing to know what your why is, to build a community around you around that why, to be well when you're doing it. But it's another to step into the world and say, hey world, I'm here and this is what I'm here to do. Hey work, this is, this is my superpower in the office and I'm here to serve it up every single day. Hey world, today I'm not having a good day, but I'm gonna do my best and show up as well as I can. Showing up and being seen doesn't necessarily have to be the big and shiny parts of ourselves, but just the truth in who we are every single day. And part of incorporating inclusion and belonging in our workspaces is allowing people the freedom to do that, is leading with empathy, is allowing us to see our employees not as employees, but as humans, as humans first, and asking ourselves, how would I want to be treated in this situation as trauma unfolds, as global illness takes over? We have to lead with that empathetic part of ourselves. 
So in terms of being seen, my biggest moment of being seen was taking that stage with Michelle Obama. And all these different parts of today's conversation around building community, around being well through the process, around finding and uncovering my why, that moment on stage wouldn't have happened without all that work in advance of it. It gave me the opportunity to dive even deeper into who I am and what I'm here to do. I pitched Michelle Obama cold in a meet and greet line in December of 2018 in order for me to deliver or to, to ask her to, to interview her on her book tour. Audacity is in my blood apparently, but I also knew that she was the deciding factor in me taking that stage. When we premiered our film at the Obama White House, the Obamas were not there. It was the last 90 days of their experience, of their time in office. And it was something that I had to be thoughtful of when I was pitching her. But taking that from that pitch and when she held my hands and told me, this is destiny, we are going to make this happen, to 10 months later, multiple no's later, taking that stage in Ottawa, the work that I put in in between allowed me to be so fully seen in that room and in that space by many of you who are in this room today that it transformed the trajectory of my career and of the impact that I seek to have on the world. And so I am mindful of my time and I want to wrap it here but allowing ourselves to be seen in our purpose, being well as we navigate our purpose and Surrounding ourselves with communities and conversations of support as we pursue our purpose is so important. And this is important in our workplaces and outside of our workplaces. The closer we become to our why, to that which moves us most, the more elevated we can become in our life and in our work. So I'm Komal. I create and fund work that I wish existed when I was younger. Work that at the end of the day uplifts and inspires women and girls. And I have one question for all of you. What breaks your heart? Thank you, everybody, so much. I know we're going to be moving into Q&A now, and Kathy's going to be coming back on the line for me. Um, but I so appreciate you giving me the space to share part of my story today. And I know that we're also going to be doing Q&A for the WebEx participants, and you can enter that into the chat box or in the Q&A box by making it available to all participants. So after the keynote, the audience and the moderator, Kathy, asked me a number of questions. Now you won't be able to hear the direct questions, but I'm gonna jump in here and summarize for you what was asked, uh, and then you'll hear my answer. The first question, how do you build resilience? Yeah, I think honestly, so I did a podcast episode on this concept. There was a doctor who came out with seven C's of resilience for, for young kids actually. And two of the most important, community was a big part of that. Part of what I build into, into my keynotes is around these concepts of resilience, but maybe not naming it on its head. But the most important ones for me are that competence leads to confidence. Because resilience is really like, when we hit rock bottom or go through a trauma or something difficult, um, our confidence is shot. And um, Sheryl Sandberg actually, Sandberg actually talks about this in option B. When her husband died and she was trying to go back to work at Facebook, the single biggest factor to her feeling confident again in her work was Mark Zuckerberg asking her to sit in on meetings, even when she was so overwhelmed by the grief of her loss, but getting her back into her routine and reminding her of who she is, reminding her of her confidence, and reminding her that if you want to be at work because grieving at home is too hard for you, then be here, even though you might not be at full function. And so 
slowly rebuilding our competence after points of trauma or grief is one of the biggest factors in rebuilding that confidence. And that confidence is that is that resilience. So you go to your low, you're feeling like a shadow of yourself, and you slowly become, build up your competence again, and, and you become to you start to feel like yourself again. Again, it's also like life throws you everything. You can't help but become resilient. And if you do try and resist it, life will throw you many more curveballs. And I'm sure everyone in this room identifies with that. So it's also just about showing up to the pain as it comes up, showing up to the things that are very hard um, and doing the work as it shows up instead of like putting it to the side for later, because later it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So resilience for me, it comes from showing up for the intensity of my life as it comes up. Next up, I got a question about finding mentorship when you're in a male-dominated profession. This is what I had to say. Mm -hmm. Mentorship is massive. And to be honest, many of my mentors have been men. And it's all, I'll also point out now that we are pseudo-quarantined in our house together. My father-in-law, uh, my husband, and our cousin Nathan, we all live together. So I live with men exclusively. And um, when we talk about mentorship, I think that a big part of my learning since Dream Girl and in building lessons learned is that we can look to every person to teach us something and to help elevate, elevate us in some way. And when I was only looking to women for that, I would come out lacking in some ways because I would put so much pressure on certain identities to uphold and like lift me up in my career when it's really about the varied life experiences and who sees you, who in your life is actually seeing who you are and where you want to go. And do you respect what they have to give you and their credentials to help you get there? So when we were creating Dream Girl, Baus De Jong, he is a Sundance, a Sundance um, award-winning filmmaker. He took me under his wing and helped us build that film. But then on the other side of that, all the women in the film from Joanne Wilson, who became one of our angel investors and mentors, elevated us even further, specifically in a male-dominated field. When I look to a lot of the men in my life, they care so deeply about me and helping move me forward that I sometimes had to move past my own discomfort with looking to them for mentorship um, to actually get that support from them. Um, and sometimes, you know, we hear these stories of in male-dominated fields looking to women and them not necessarily being supportive. I haven't experienced that myself. I think part of it is just making the ask, taking a little bit of that vulnerability yourself and saying, this is a new space for me, but I want to improve. I want to succeed. Are you someone who is here to help support me in doing that? Because the more honest and upfront we are with our own needs and desires, the less people can mess with us. Um, so it's taking control of that narrative of that that mentor, why you're seeking that mentorship in the first place. But mentors have supported me endlessly in my career so far. I was asked how I deal with being the only in a space or in a room. And this one was one that really hit home for me, this question. Hmm. It's a great question because I'm also feeling that right now in terms of building the show Lessons Learned. So we're going on tour this fall. It was supposed to be this spring, obviously. Things have changed. Um, where I'm interviewing 20 thought leaders at 10 events across North America and um, building my own talk show and looking for the right fiscal partners and companies to work with. Um, I've never done this before. And at the scale that I want to do it, there are very few who have done it before me. And so when I look at how I go about doing this, 
communities of support are the single biggest factor in my success. And it is digital, like so many of my online friends who are addendum, like in parallel versions of the same career, who I reach out to online to say, hey, I'm going through this thing. Um, What did you do in this situation? Like I recently went to a conference where I was one of maybe 20 women of color among, no, maybe one of 100 women of color among 8,000 women. And it was it was a very strange experience, but I shared it with my online community and they helped me walk through it. So I didn't feel isolated in that room anymore because I took that experience in the room and shared it with others online. So then the isolation and the loneliness gets shared. And those folks who I shared it with then shared with me that this has happened to them before, but they also didn't know how to talk about it. So it again comes back to that vulnerability and your willingness to share that isolation with someone you trust maybe someone who looks like you or a mentor who has helped you through something or a friend, and then continuing to move forward with that community of support as you trailblaze in this new way. Kathy asked me next, what's your biggest fear? I'd say one of my most recent fears after being sick was that I would get sick again. And how could I build a career when my work takes so much from me? I'm sure like so many of you in the room have experienced burnout. I mean, the legal profession is not an easy one, (laughs) but it, uh, so embedded in me was this fear of if I create something where I'm the product, which like I love sharing my story, holding space for people, this is what I'm meant to do with my life. But after getting sick, it took me two and a half years to accept that if I wanted to make the impact I wanted to in the world, I had to set really strong health boundaries to ensure that I could be well in doing this. Because otherwise, like when I was sick, it was to that point where I wasn't sure, it's morbid, but I didn't know if I would survive my illness. And so when you're facing death in your 20s and you're saying, if I come back to work, it's on different terms, that means something. And so that was a major fear for me was how much of myself am I willing to give to my career because it took almost all of me away last time. And, but what helped me work through that was establishing strong boundaries, making new terms of engagement. One of my therapists actually gave me this analogy and it was great for me was the world just wants to know how to play with you. And it's, you're like in the sandbox, you're a kid, the other kid comes up and they're like, how do, how do we tango here? What are the rules of engagement? And I had to learn how to establish the rules of engagement. Um, I think another fear that's huge for entrepreneurs across the board is financial. When I'm building this new venture, I'm pitching companies for the first time and asking for check sizes that I haven't asked for in the past. But embedded in that is also my own money narratives, being a brown woman, first in my generation, or sorry, first in my lineage to have independent financial access. How do I do this? How do I retrain my brain around money? How do I make this an abundance mindset? How do I learn to build the the competence to have the confidence to walk into a pitch meeting and say, hey, This is what I have to offer. It's valuable. Let's work together. And that's why meeting someone like Mona, who is supporting me in doing that, and other women who have, and and men who have stepped up at various companies to help me learn that has been huge. So one fear, loss of health. Another is money narratives. As a follow-up to the last question, Kathy asked me, how do you move through these fears and failure when you face it? Mm. I have, like... It's funny that I can just show you these, but I have like four different journals. One's a work journal, one's a personal journal, one's like a 
these are the parts of myself I want to improve journal. When I'm so crippled by fear, I write it out. I just stream of consciousness, let's get all these fears on paper because I'm also a very logical person. So if I let myself go to worst case scenario, map it all out, be like, if everything were to go sideways, this is what would happen. And then work my way back to like, what would actually probably happen? Like if failure hit me, because often when we're afraid to do something, we're just afraid of the failure of doing it. What's someone else gonna say? Am I gonna be successful at it, whatever? Before launching and creating Lessons Learned, before the Michelle Obama interview, I was building another startup. And it became abundantly clear to me that it was the wrong thing for me to build. And in one day I had to let six employees go. So like talk about a quote unquote failure moment. But for me, it was like, honestly, this was a bridge to me figuring out the right next thing. So when we deflate or pop that balloon of failure and the anxiety that's around that fear through writing it, through facing it, through naming it, the next right step becomes a lot easier because you take kind of the anxiety out of it. You take, you prepare yourself. I think that also some people are like, I would go to dream girl events and they'd be like, Hey, I want to start my business tomorrow. Can I, I want to quit my job. Like, let's go. And I'm like, no, build it on the side, build up your, like whatever your nest egg is that you need to, to have six months of runway or whatever it, it needs to be when you leave this career so that you can protect yourself. Like, Sometimes that fear is valid, and sometimes we need to listen to the fear. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't still take the next right step. Next up, the question was, what advice would you give to your younger self? Although Kathy did say, you're still pretty young, but 30 is a lot of years to learn some stuff. This is what I had to say. I honestly, if I could go back to me and Aaron, my co-founder, in 2016 when I was diagnosed with cancer, we never thought of moving our premiere date for the film. So I was diagnosed in March, our premiere was set for June, the White House premiere was set for May. Like neither of us thought about, hey, we are at the helm of this thing. We can slow it down if we need to. So the advice I'd give my younger self is take your time. Like it's great that I'm 30 and all these things have happened, but I could be 35 and all these things could have happened. So it's not, and I think that also comes from like seeing how hard my parents worked. I didn't have like the privilege of like, I in my brain it was like you go hard or, or like that's it. So I'd say to her like, slow down, take it easy, read a couple books, like be a little reckless. You can do it, you got time for it, but that would be it. An audience member asked me, what do you suggest for young people who are looking for community but can't find any in their field or in their age range? This is what I had to say. Hmm, thank you for that question. So one community that exists that I was a part of um, was the Global Shapers community. So this is, and I don't know if Kara is in the room, but she said she was going to be, but she is a global shaper herself. She's going to be the curator of the Ottawa group, but it's with the World Economic Forum and it's, it's for young leaders. And for the types of young leaders I think you're speaking to, this is definitely a global place for them to connect with other like-minded people. Um, a lot of my groups are actually informal as well. So it is hard, but also I would often create the groups that didn't exist that I wanted to have. So for example, um, this is the only one that's coming to mind right now, but in university, I was going through a health scare at the time. I, I had found a lump 
um, and it was being biopsied. And I realized there's no spaces in, on campus um, where young people can come together around cancer and experiences with cancer. So we started the Relay for Life at Carleton. And that's now turned 10 years later into not only having raised over a million for the Canadian Cancer Society, but it's this community hub for young students who are alone on campus who can come together around these sort of trauma-informed experiences. So to those young people, I would also say like, I would, I would challenge them and be like, have you really looked? Because especially in this digital age, there is a community for everything and everyone, whether you're searching on Reddit and you find it or on Instagram and you find it, encourage them to keep digging. And if it doesn't exist, encourage them to build it in your office. Um, that's one thing that I often speak to is around affinity groups for um, people of color, for different from different uh, for folks from different uh, intersections of identity, for uh, companies to build those affinity groups so that people who are with a shared identity can come together in that way. So um, yeah, the Global Shapers is a huge one. Um, and then also to just do a deep dive online again. And, and it doesn't always need to be an in-person uh, community. I love online communities. And then if it's not there, encourage them to make it. Because I'm sure if they're feeling that way, there are many other people like them who are feeling that way as well. I'm sad we, I missed you at CEO as well. I was actually on day one too, but I, and then I flew back Monday night. But thank you so much for your question. The next question is one that I think a lot of us have challenge with. And it's how do you show up vulnerable? And it was how do you show up vulnerably in your life? And I split it into personal and professional, and this is what I had to share that day. Mm, that's such a great question. Um, so I'm going to speak to it on the personal side and then the professional side. Um, professionally, I have found it very hard to be vulnerable in a workplace. And that's almost one, like that's one of the biggest reasons I deferred to creating my own company culture. Um, even with a previous co-founder, when we were establishing our company culture, like I, vulnerability was touted, but it wasn't honored. It wasn't truly something someone was willing to hold space for. So when it comes to vulnerability, like it really is about the person in front of you and their emotional intelligence and capacity. Because a lot of the times we have managers who shouldn't be managing people. We have technical folks who don't have the best EI and capacity to manage teams who are in those leadership positions or folks who are like, it was like this for me, so it's going to be like this for you. And so when we're not in a growth mindset as managers, when we're not um, leading with empathy as managers, um, we're not holding space for our employees to actually be vulnerable. And when it comes to inclusion and belonging, that's a huge part of it because if I'm going into a workplace and my boss doesn't look like me, isn't holding space for my lived experience, and the workload is insane, I then am on a path to burnout. Like it, it's the World Health Organization now has diagnosed burnout as a diagnosis. Like this is something we as teams and leaders need to take really seriously. So it's not just on the individual to become vulnerable, but it's do I work in a space that actually values and upholds vulnerability because say I'm the, the sole caretaker for my parent at home and COVID is going around and I now have to work from home because I'm if I carry that into my home and my parent becomes ill it's on me um, if we can't have those sorts of candid conversations in our workplace then we are doing a disservice to not only the quality of work that that human can create but just the quality of life that that person can have so in the professional setting, vulnerability really depends on the workplace that you're in. 
and the willingness of your uh, manager employer to truly hold space for you, which honestly comes to the personal, which is, are you able to decouple your personal beliefs from your professional life? Um, So a lot of people, their productivity is linked to their self-worth. So if they're not doing well at work or if their employees aren't producing the way that they want them to, their self-worth diminishes. And so when that happens, um, you can act out on your employees, on your family members, whatever it is. But if you get a sense of identity that's separate from your output and your productivity, which has taken me years of therapy, (laughs) but it's made me a better employer and wife and and partner um, and daughter, um, it helps me take more responsibility and accountability for where I'm at emotionally, what I'm bringing to the table. Um, And it's a huge uh, benefit. But I would say go to places to be vulnerable that you can trust. So therapy, paying someone who is a professional credentialed human to hold space for you. Um, and, and then also coaching. Coaching is a really great thing, whether it's a professional coach, a personal coach who can help you work through how can I be more vulnerable in the spaces I'm in and who is deserving of my vulnerability and who's not. That's my um, TED talk on vulnerability. <laughs> This next question was a funny one to answer because I don't have kids, but the wonderful woman who asked this question got emotional sharing about her hopes and dreams for her three daughters, one who's quite young, the eldest being 23, and her being worried that they wouldn't find meaning in their life and careers and worried that they might not be on the right track or worried that they might be too narcissistic with their use of social media and all the things. And this is what I had to say as a non-parent, but as someone who has seen a lot of people around me raise incredible children and taking a cue from what my own mother did when she raised me. But but I will, what I will say to that is it was through becoming selfish and not necessarily like, okay, give me a sec. First caveat, I am not a mother. But I have mentored and coached a lot of my younger cousins through a lot of hard times. And when I look back at sort of that through line, whether it was childhood sex abuse, whether it was um, drug addiction, whether it was um, bullying, like my cousins, they are so strong. But I think what we often forget is like the only way we learned our lessons was by falling. My parents didn't want me to have cancer. My parents didn't want me to be with my white husband. They didn't want me to do so many of these things in my life. But they also, at some point, you know, I was watching an interview, and maybe this will be helpful too, is that Oprah interviewed her best friend Gail on her last tour stop in Colorado. And Oprah often talks about how parents, you go from being managers to consultants. And that that transition from manager to consultant is really hard for for some parents. And seeing my mom go through that transition, because Lord knows from like, okay, from like 12 to 16, we had a really hard period of time. And then from like 19 to 25, it was bad. Um, But it was through the hard things that we came closer together. Because my cancer diagnosis, the silver lining, was I did my recovery here in Ottawa because we were living in New York at the time, so I would come back up. And my mom came here to my future father-in-law's home and saw how much my white in-laws and my white husband loved on me so hard and loved me so well. And that brought our families closer together. So while we have this tendency to like think 
And a lot of the times parents do know what's best. Obviously, like I am trained well by my parents in a lot of ways, but we got to also let them mess up. But then also give them, let them know that you're going to be there for them through the mess ups. Like when I think of a little cousin of mine who's going through a really hard time right now, she's 12 years old, discipline was lacking in her life. And what I mean by discipline is just like little habits at home, like, you know, cleaning up at home, like having extracurricular activities that she cared about, various things. Like she was on one end of the spectrum of not necessarily neglect, but just like not being fully supported in her routines. But after an incident in the house, like now the parents are stepping up and in to create that routine and discipline for her because at that age, that's all that they want is to be seen, to be heard, and to be cared for. Um, And so at the 23 age point or like the older, anything you say to them at this point, they are not going to heed because they're on their independent exploring life, like who am I in the world journey? And it's through that narcissism, I hope, or like that, that, like that focus on themselves that they are truly going to define who they are. So it's also like going from maybe it's like the social media narcissism to how do you lev- help them look for positive accounts on social? How do you help them maybe look to something like therapy or coaching to get them through this harder period of time? Can you help them find the supports that aren't necessarily you that are going to teach them what you want them to learn? Um, so these would just be some suggestions I have. And I, I truly I feel like you, we, we love on our kids so hard. And I imagine my future kids when I say this. And my husband is definitely going to be, I'm a little bit more of like, I mean, I don't have kids, so I can't even speak to this. But Mitch often says, he's like, when our kids don't need us anymore, it's going to be the hardest thing for me. And I'm like, for sure. 100%. But we're going to know that we have given them all that they need to know that they, they, they can come back to here. So um, again, unsolicited advice from not a parent, but just that d- discipline for the youngers and letting them know that you care for them, but not also taking that to an extreme, like finding that balance for them and then trusting their journey. Someone once said this to me when I was, when I was diagnosed. He said, trust in the process of your life unfolding. And we're all here to learn the various lessons we're meant to in the way that we're supposed to. And so trusting in that process is what has allowed me to learn so much so fast and now to be able to create space for others. And the other thing is like comparison, like that was the hardest thing for me as a kid was when my parents would compare me to other kids. It's like, I'm not that person, ma. Like that's not my life. I'm trying to just be me. And so just don't compare me to someone else. And we had a hard conversation about it when I was younger and she wouldn't after that. So that was really helpful for me. So I was also like at 12, 13, I did not say the nicest things to my mom, which I regret now, but now we're friends and it's better, but it took a while to get there. (laughs) So yeah, that's all I can give as a non-parent. I hope that was helpful. Next up someone who recovered from burnout and went on to have a meaningful career and had faced that burnout actually at the law firm I was speaking at and was so well supported by the company culture, by the partners, by everyone. She was able to build her career back up within that law firm and recover while working for that law firm, which like kudos to that firm for having that kind of a work culture because that's a story that we don't hear enough about. She asked, it's been years since she's been well and now her parent or her And now her kids are out of the house. She's an empty nester and she wants to do more for the community, but she's also worried about her health and well-being. So she asked, how do I build up 
my involvement in the community, the amount of output that I'm doing, while also maintaining being well. And this is what I had to offer to her. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And full transparency, like there is a silver lining to COVID because we had to postpone my spring tour to the fall. And we were ready. Like I was ready to go do eight events in four weeks, like travel across North America starting March 26th. Um, I was ready to go. But I also was at a point where I knew, okay, if I, when I do this, I'm self-sacrificing. Like I am, I'm, I'm burning the candle at both ends. We had a lot of family stuff happen recently. Building new business is very challenging. Being emotionally available at the events that I'm at and really wanting to show up for my audience is so important to me, but I'm also an empath. So like now when we live on our acreage, like this is where I come to like refuel and like fill myself back up. And so I am still figuring this out myself because I was going to be willing to self-sacrifice with a project that I'm at the helm of. Even when I learned that lesson from Dream Girl about taking more time, I was going to make myself do this. And then COVID came around and it was like, you're not going to do a public event in April and May. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to do that. We're going to do it in the fall, but I'm going to take this as an intern internalize this lesson to say, hey, at that moment, you have to listen to yourself. And you have to listen to what your body requires and needs. Because for me now, that period of time between identifying that things are too much to becoming unwell or sick is a lot shorter than what it was in the past. My body doesn't have that same bandwidth to keep pushing me. So I have to self-moderate that. And when it comes to it, it's like listening, and Oprah says this, to the whispers. Um, For example, like, just little things come up that remind me that, no, you need to pull back now. And I've done things like I have notes in my phone of lists of things that I do to unwind. So puzzles are on there. (laughs) Some Netflix is on there. Um, Going for walks is on there. Like I needed a physical reminder as I was building these habits of what I do to unplug um, so that I actually stayed accountable to it. And now those things have become ingrained where it's like, okay, I'm feeling really overwhelmed. My brain is like, you know, when you've been at your computer too long and your brain is just like throbbing and it's like, oh, I'm going to keep working. It's like, no, you're not. You're going to step back and you're going to go to your list and you're going to pick something and you're going to do two of those things. So it's a case by case basis. But I would say that in asking this question, it's the first step to having that awareness and just knowing that these boundaries need to be set and that you are reengaging with the community work with work again now that you're having more extracurricular time but to not go all out right away but pick it piece by piece in terms of building up your schedule again because once you're committed it's so hard to pull out but you can layer it on piece by piece with a little bit more intention and time finally our last question of the afternoon was how to manage being the only in a room or in a workspace when you feel equally balanced in your identities, when you don't over-identify with being, for example, with me, Indo or Canadian, this individual felt like they had a pretty good semblance of balance between those two identities of themselves. And they were asking, how do you show up well with that being your reality? This is what I had to share. Mm, Great question. So I recently... When I went to this conference, I was sharing on my Instagram about the experience of feeling like the only. And then in the week after, I got four 
requests to be on diversity and inclusion panels. And I was like, hey guys, I shared my experience as a woman of color being the only in a space, but I am not a diversity and inclusion expert. That's not my role. Like I do not, just because this is my lived experience doesn't mean I am the go-to around this conversation. And I say that because I have so many friends who are DNI experts who do work for companies in this space who would be so much more well-suited to moderating a conversation around that. Um, and so, yeah, I get typecast a lot. Um, but as my mom says, like, use it to your advantage. Um, I think that sometimes when we talk about feminine leadership or we talk about the stereotypes that are projected onto us, there's a way for us to leverage it to our benefit. Um, and I am someone who definitely believes in that. Um, but I think it's such an internal, Kate, like you, it's, it's all about how it feels for you. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure how else to speak to that in this moment, but also for me, it's like, I think about that every day with my husband, because when we do raise our kids or have the privilege of having kids, like our kids are going to be mixed babies. And I grew up speaking, reading and writing Punjabi, doing Punjabi dancing, like all that stuff. How am I going to impart that onto my kids when we're in a predominantly white community, family? What's that going to look like? So I, it's such a complicated conversation and dialogue, but I think it's just about like really tuning in for yourself and saying what feels right to me in this moment. And then also like for those panels, I declined all of them. You're, it's not your responsibility to fill the stereotype. If it doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. Um, and that's what I had to do in that situation and actually name it to certain folks and be like, I am not a DNI expert. Here's some people who are. Um, it's not your job to do that emotional labor for other people, especially when you are the only. Um, there are experts who are trained to do that thing and you can offload that work to the experts. Um, but it takes courage to be able to name that in a situation. I hope that was helpful. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode all about how to build and live a purpose-driven life. If you liked what you heard, make sure to check out our other episodes, two of which also landed this week, one being a fireside chat I had at Carleton University where I spoke to students about my life since university and the things that have helped me build a meaningful career, and an episode all about COVID-19 and what it's been like to be on self-quarantine and self-isolation for the last week and my thoughts on all things happening right, right now and tips that I have for you. So if you want to listen to those episodes, listen to them wherever you're listening to this. Until next week, my loves. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you loved this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to follow me, Komal, check me out on Instagram at K-O-M-A-L-M-I-N-H-A-S or the show at LessonsLearned.co. And if you have an idea of a lesson that we should dive into on the show, then slide into our DMs and submit there or on the website, along with any guests you think I should interview and talk all of the things with. As always, I hope that you make some time for you this week and reflect on the lessons you're learning or have learned and take some time to celebrate all the incredible that is you. Until next time, guys. Bye.